0: page 622, Psalm 120, and it's entitled, A Song of Ascent, and Simon's going to explain what that means when he talks to us, but it's one of many attributed to King David himself. So starting to read at verse 1 now. Call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides you, deceitful tongue? He will punish you with warriors' sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshek that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war.
1: Thank you very much, Robin, for reading that psalm to us. I'm taking it that we have prayed already because, um, as Joan was reading from Psalm 119, that is the cry of our hearts. Uh, May my cry come before you, Lord, give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you, deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous, and so on. We pray in that vein this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Robins set me up well by mentioning that title, The Song of Ascents. We have a series now where morning and evening, over the summer months, we are... Looking at this little section of the Psalter, Psalm 120 through to Psalm 134 all have this little title, A Song of Ascents, some of them attributed directly to King David, uh, but they've all got that title, and uh, it seemed like a section of the Psalter that we could fruitfully look at over the summer months. Where often it, it helps us to have a standalone thing, but with a, a theme that unites the summer, uh, people come come and go from different Sundays. But here we are. We start on Psalm 120 today, and it gives me a, an opportunity to tell you about uh, a wonderful Irishman. Um, I I don't know whether people will know the name T. C. Hammond. He was. Uh, we had a, an Irishman. Speaking last week in church, Patrick Bamble was here with us, but this is an Irishman from the last century. He was a brilliant theologian. Uh, He had an amazing mind um, and was brilliant academically. He got uh, lured away to Australia, so we probably didn't get quite the benefit of, of him except in publications He had a brilliant ability to to put Bible truth very strikingly, often just in ad hoc conversations with people. There was a woman who asked him once, when a general election was happening, um, why she should vote. She said, Christians are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, so how can they possibly vote in the election of earthly rulers? It's illogical and wrong. Well, madam, he said to her, it's like this. If you can't vote as a citizen... Why not vote as a lodger? If you're a citizen of heaven and you feel like you can't vote, you're you're at least a lodger on planet Earth. Why not vote in the general election, therefore? Now, that tension is what Psalm 120 is all about. That sense that we are heading for heaven if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, each of us has got an earthly address. When we have to do the online forms, we put in our postcode and the the list of possible addresses comes down in a little list and we select it, don't we? We dwell in Meshech or among the tents of Kedar Um, and you can substitute for them if you like, Stapleford, Shelford, Saffron, Walden, wherever you're from. Our hearts are in heaven but our homes are brick and mortar in this world. And inevitably, therefore, that means for the believer that we find ourselves amongst people who are sometimes very different from us. They don't have that sense that their home is in heaven, but we do. Maybe they even attack us, and we have that sense that we're a strange minority. We're lodgers, temporary residents, we don't belong. So that's the truth that lies behind this psalm. I would suggest it's the truth that lies behind all 15 of the psalms that we're looking at over the next few weeks, morning and evening. As I said, the title is there for each of them, A Song of Ascents. This one today, the first of 15 of them. Sung by those who were ascending to Jerusalem or Mount Zion, the mountain in the middle of Jerusalem where the temple was, for the annual temple feasts. So you get this picture of people from all over Israel converging on a central location, Jerusalem, ascending to the high point of the country for their feasts. Now, the title itself, A Song of Ascent, can mean two things. The Hebrew Hebrew is a slippery language. I'm not an expert at all remotely, but it can mean a couple of things, I am told. It could mean, just a straightforward normal plural, lots of different ascents, a song of ascents. As all the pilgrims are making their way up to Jerusalem, it could mean that. Or, in the Hebrew, ascents is a plural not of number, but of magnitude, or a plural of intensity. I'm trying to find a way of expressing it. Hebrew works like this. You don't say very holy or holiest. You say holy, holy, holy. You pluralize the adjective there. And this is a song not of many ascents particularly, but of the great ascent. You're magnifying that word ascent by putting it in the plural. And there are those two possible meanings to the title Song of Ascents. Lots of ascents or the bigger ascents. Or better still, I want to have my cake and eat it. Instead of either one or the other, it can be both of them. It could be a double entendre because both are true and possible. Every male Israelite has to go up to the temple three times a year for the festivals Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles. They make the ascents plural as individuals, so they all converge. But why did God command that? Why did you command all those mini-ascents? Well, because it was a picture of the big ascent, which we're all engaged in. Heading for God's place. Heading for heaven. Heading for the heavenly Jerusalem, as it were. I have often compared the, uh, the Christian life to following a compass. I've, I brought millions of props with me to the 9.30 service. I'm very distressed not to have managed to get lasagna into the sermon and hammers into the sermon, but I have a compass here, okay? Um, I'm not even sure I particularly can work it. This is a really cool one because it, it has a sort of spirit level in it that holds it level. When you're walking on a compass bearing, the, the, the arrow moves around a lot. It gets disturbed. It wobbles when you wobble, I suppose is what's going on. But it always comes back to rest on north, doesn't it? And the Christian life can be like that. There are lots of disturbances in life on the journey to heaven. But if I am born again, if I have the Holy Spirit living inside me, if I know my sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ because he died for me on the cross, then even with disturbances and even if occasionally i seem to go off course a bit. Well, other people say, you're off course. I feel that way sometimes. God doesn't give up on me. He'll he'll get me back on course. The arrow will settle on not north, magnetic north or true north, but on heaven. He's going to get me home to heaven. And I think it's a helpful illustration. There is dislocation and difficulty in the Christian journey for all of us. But the destination is not in doubt. He'll get us home to heaven. And that great ascent is the theme of these psalms, these songs of ascent. We're all journeying, but we're all converging on the great goal and destination. Now, in our psalm today, the sense of being out of step with other people around him or just a lodger, my home is in heaven, um, and I'm finding it hard to get there in some ways. It's difficult to get there. There's a journey on that's quite hard at times. The sense of being an alien and a stranger in the world, because I belong to God, it might not be the way we would normally express that dislocation and difference and uh, being out of step with others around us. Look for the clues as to why he feels different, distressed, dislocated. Let me read first from verses 1 and 2. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from, here are the clues, lying lips and from deceitful tongues. And I think you get more clues at the end of the psalm in verses 6 and 7. See what he says there. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Can you crystallize in your head what the sense of being different and out of step from others around him is there? It might not be the way we normally think about how Christians are different from the world. When I was running the youth work As a curate up in Cheshire, just after i got ordained, we had a stuffed animal, a cuddly toy, as a member of the youth group. It was a multicolored reptile, and the reptile had a name. It was called Clarence the chameleon, and the chameleon became a standard feature of our youth group life because, you know the deal, chameleons change color to suit the environment that they're in, Uh, They do it to feel safe. They blend in so that they're not easily attacked uh, by predators and so on. We had a watchword for the Christian teenagers. Don't be a Clarence. Don't blend in like a chameleon. Dare to be different. And I suppose there are lots of areas where we might immediately think Christians are supposed to be different from those around them. We can think of different lifestyles in the way Christians spend their money, uh, what they do with their bodies, so on and so forth. But I wonder whether we'd come up with the area of dislocation difference which this psalm suggests is there. The psalmist was under attack from deceitful tongues, from lies. People around him were using the tongue as an offensive weapon in some way either against each other, it was just the culture, maybe it was a a, a smear campaign directly against him, the psalmist, as a believer. He was for peace, they were for war. So there was verbal jousting going on in the world around the psalmist, uh, of which he was just thoroughly weary and fed up with it. And it could have happened in lots of different places, couldn't it? It could have happened in the courts, as um, truth was set on, side, on one side in the, in the judicial department of life. It could just have been in the way people rubbished each other with barbed comments and gossip. You get a sense of it going on and on. There's a, there's a groan under the surface of verse 6, isn't there? Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. Oh, It just goes on and on and on, and he's ground down by it. Now, there have always been lies operating in human society, and they are distressing and difficult for a believer who is committed to living by the truth or living the truth. So lies have been there from the start. One of Satan's great tactics always has been. Remember the Garden of Eden? Did God say you must not eat the fruit? He loves to lie. He's called the father of lies, the devil loves to attack us with lies. And if we are a Christian, he will always attack our minds in one way or another with lies, getting us to believe wrong things about God or about ourselves. And for that reason, we greatly need the Bible, don't we? It was lovely that Edward put in Psalm 119 as our first reading. Of course, it comes right before Psalm 120. It made sense to do that. But the word of God, the commands, the statutes, the precepts, the promises are what we need to stop us straying like a lost sheep. Uh, We need the truth of God to deal with the lies of Satan. Because those lies, we just pick them up in the air. We breathe all around us. It's like passive smoking. We don't even know we're breathing in the half-truths and lies all around us. And we don't just need the Bible, we need friends who will help us to see things as they are and to see the lies of the devil for what they are. Susu has a a line that she very helpfully uses sometimes in counseling individuals. I sometimes hear uh, from another room the phone conversation where she says to somebody, that's a lie of Satan. It's a lie from Satan to rob you of joy. And I'm pretty sure I checked this with her at 9.30. She says that because it's been said to her by her father in the times past when she was um, easily inclined to believe wrong things and uh, lose her joy as a result. Those lies from the devil to rob you from joy need the touchstone of truth, but they need friends who will tell us the truth as well. I wonder if you have somebody who speaks into your life helpfully in that sort of way or whether you're prepared to do that for somebody else. We need it. There's a spiritual warfare going on. But I don't think the warfare is only spiritual warfare. I think there was a bit of literal, real verbal jousting going on for the psalmist. And I wonder today if this kind of verbal fighting isn't increasingly a, a mark of our culture today, where you think about it, expressing a view Leads. Well, it's a risky thing to do. You express your view on something, you are taking a bit of a risk, aren't you, if you've got a pronounced view on something. If you express a view publicly that is out of step with other people, then you're on the risk of being cancelled or death by media execution, or whatever it might be. You can think of other examples of where this verbal jousting takes us. Mobile phones can take the hostility of the school playground with children wherever they go after school. We had an example of that uh, only this last week um, from some friends of ours. Or where rudeness or bluntness in media circles is just in interview styles. We've moved massively on from what would have been considered acceptable behaviour just 20 years ago on the Respectable Radio for Today programs and things like that. So there's a, a, a cultural shift where verbal sparring and bullying will easily affect us. If we haven't experienced it, we are, we are, it's normalized for us, isn't it? And in a culture where moral outrage and anger get expressed the whole time, here's the question, will a Christian believer dare to be different there? Will we be a person of peace amongst those who speak for war? Or do we just do a Christian version of the same thing? So we promote hostility ourselves. We care about winning the arguments for the Christian cause. We want to win the argument with our culture, even if we win the argument and never win anyone in the culture at all, just because we are just as toxic as anybody else in the way we fight. I think that's at least a risk for Christians. The psalmist didn't do that. He left the winning of the day to God. He knew that God would put the record straight, and that meant that he didn't have to. I think that's the point of verses 3 and 4. Let me reread them again. This is where the psalmist speaks. <laughs> it's a lovely phrase, isn't it? speaks to... The deceitful tongue. So suddenly the tongue has become the person, as it were. The guy who is a deceiver has got his comeuppance coming. What will he, God, do to you? And what more besides, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. He'll do it, so I don't have to fight back. I can be a man of peace. I can leave vengeance to God, it's his department, it's not supposed to be mine. And God will always get the writing of wrongs right. So the psalm is saying to us, don't be a clarence. Don't let your blood boil just because everybody else's blood is boiling. And that's the sort of mark of society. Don't add your moral outrage to the anger and barbs all around us. The moral high ground is not a place for the Christian to occupy and dig in. And I wonder if Peter had this psalm in mind when he wrote those words we had earlier in the service after our prayer of confession. He wrote about Jesus in this way. He, Jesus, committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Well, it's a nice short psalm. I hope that means I've been moderately short in the preaching of it. I've got two simple applications two lessons from this psalm of ascents for us to take to heart. Prayer and pilgrimage. By prayer, I mean this. I really mean what it says in verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Save me, Lord. In other words, his answer to that sense of dislocation is to make sure that his heart has the vertical relationship with God praying. I don't just know the truth, I pray the truth. When we say the creed, as we do each week in church, we don't just say the creed. We, can I put it like this, we pray the creed. We breathe it out in prayer, as it were. Prayer. I think he did that in the psalm. The whole idea of psalms is to verticalize the truth and to pray, to remind myself that I'm heading home to heaven. Lord, you've got hold of me. I'm coming. I say it to him. Prayer. And pilgrimage, which you might not have been expecting me to say as a a, a thing, but I think I can't really avoid it with songs of ascent before us. John Wesley said, I am the creature of a day. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. So he was a pilgrim too. He's heading for heaven. And that is the most important thing. For him, it's the one thing in life that really matters. Do you know the way to heaven? Do you know that you're heading there? That was how he felt. The number one question that needs to be settled for each one of us. Am I safely on the way to heaven? And he went on to say this, John Wesley. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He's written it down. In a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. So I want to say that this book, as we've already thought by that reading from Psalm 119, is the route map for us to guide us on the way to heaven. And we need it for our pilgrimage. But the book on its own is not enough. What the Songs of Ascent are saying to us is we need each other as fellow travellers as well. Um, that's probably, if you ask people who've been on pilgrimages, ask Charles and Caroline who've been on that uh, Camino in northern Spain. This is one of the things that makes those sorts of pilgrimages memorable. It's, it's the fellow travellers. Yes, the, the solitude is good for personal reflection, But the fellow travellers you're with on the journey are a significant part of it. Now, you don't have to go to Lord or to Lindisfarne. Uh, Remember who you are and where you're headed in the company of fellow travellers as we come to church week by week. We are on a journey together, and it's a real help to be here in person if we can to remind each other As fellow travelers, that we're heading on the same direction as each other. So don't allow the lies and the attacks to rob us of a true sense of things. Um, Don't get isolated from fellow pilgrims, the Songs of Ascent sages. I think that is why services are so important. And um, with great respect to those that are watching on Zoom, I think I'm allowed to say this, it's why watching at home on our own isn't quite the same. I realize that it feels like the only option for some of us at times. That's fine. But physically getting here at the same time as other people is part of the process of establishing our self-identity as pilgrims And I actually thank God for YouTube Christianity. It's been an absolute lifeline for us over the last couple of years. But it is inevitably easier to slip into being a customer, somebody who likes the selection of channels that we're looking at. And if we are obliged to do that, we'll have to find other ways to fellowship with other Christians. So I think Zoom is better than just watching on my own at a different convenient time for me because I can do it in company as it were supplement it with a phone call to one or two of the other people just so you can stay in touch and be fellow pilgrims together or how about if you're not happy meeting indoors at the moment an open air service oh we have one of those next week that you could come to 10.30 on the 3rd of July it's How do we together reinforce our convictions so that we have that internal passport that says, I'm a citizen of heaven. Life is tough in this world because I'm not home yet. But I'm heading there. You're heading there. Let's go together. We need the book. And we need the fellow pilgrims. So prayer and pilgrimage. I wonder if that doesn't take us quite a long way to understanding what this little section of the Bible is all about. Helping us to think clearly about ourselves as we meet together and sing together. I like the story about an accountant who was waiting on a station platform when somebody asked him, Who are you? Bit of a strange question to get on a platform. Who are you? And they replied, I'm a Christian, thinly disguised as an accountant. There's a conversation for a commuter. But what, what they're saying is the relationship with God was what really mattered about them, not their employment. And I want that sense for myself that I'm a child of God headed for heaven to trump all other views about myself, including the lies of Satan that occasionally assail me, as they assail all of us. I'm a child of God, thinly disguised as a village vicar, or whatever it might be in your case. Let's pray together with these words before us. We thank you for songs to sing together, Heavenly Father. We pray that you'd help us all as fellow travellers, on the road to heaven. We thank you for the gift of your word to steer us in the truth. We thank you for fellow travelers uh, near and far, those that we'll speak to maybe later on today who aren't here for now but uh, are journeying with us. God, we pray that you would protect us from the attacks and from the toxic culture all around us, Help us not to add to it ourselves, to be people of peace whose lives are marked by that deep, unshakable inner peace that comes from you. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.